We've all been there, done that. We meet someone, fall in love, pledge our lives to each other. Then as so often happens, we kill someone or rob someone of drugs or money and have to go on the run. Who hasn't found themselves in that situation? Sounds like it's time for episode 45 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your okie-dokie doggy daddy host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome fellow podcaster Jared Galanti, a.k.a. Clark F. Gable, who has chosen the Tony Scott, Quentin Tarantino, neo-noir, true romance, and I have chosen the quite different Jean-Luc Godard French film classic Perrault Les Fous, both about lovers on the run. To begin, Jared, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Hi there, my name is Jared Galante. I am a father of three young children, an actor and a writer and a human being. Let's go with that. Sounds good. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is True Romance. First, some information about the film. True Romance is an American film released in 1993. It was directed by Tony Scott and written by Quentin Tarantino. It stars Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, Bronson Pinchot, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Rapaport, Saul Rubinick, Conchita Farrell, James Gandolfini, Chris Penn, Tom Sizemore, Kevin Corrigan, and Ed Lauder. The story revolves around a young man who falls in love with an escort, secretly hired for him as a birthday present. When the man tries to make things right with her pimp, he ends up killing him, stealing his stash of cocaine, and fleeing with his love to Los Angeles to meet an actor friend he hopes will help him unload the drugs. But the true owners of the coke, the Italian mob, are on his tail. Why did you choose this film? I chose this film. If you're going to say top five favorite films, this is maybe my number one. I found this film, I was, see, 93, so I was probably in junior high school. My father, let's just say he never edited what my brother and I could watch. And he was a film buff himself, so he would have us watch every movie from Taxi Driver to The Accused when we were kids. So we saw some heavy-duty films. I remember hearing about this film because Christian Slater was really big in the 90s, and I was a fan of him. It's a Christian Slater film, and it was called True Romance. Now, I didn't know about the whole pulp book connotation with that, which I would have loved now, later in my life. I thought it was going to be a rom-com. So I said, I I don't want to see that film. My dad rented it on the old VHS. I was just walking in and he was watching it. And if a film is great, it's going to suck you in. And it just started sucking me in. 20 minutes into the film, an actor, Gary Oldman, who I really didn't know much about at that point, but would have deeply affected my life, was on screen. And I'm just going like, this guy's amazing. I think Dracula had just come out at the time. Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, by Francis Ford Coppola. I'm watching that. And he goes, you know who that is? And meanwhile, this Gary Oldman's playing a white pimp who thinks he's black. And he goes, that's Dracula. And I'm a young actor. And at this time, I'm watching this and I go, that guy? plays Dracula and he's playing a pimp. So right then I fell in love with the depth of acting. I started watching the film. Anybody who knows me, this film was me. It was a comic book fan, an overly romantic guy with a chip on his shoulder. It's the glamorized version of what you want it to be. And of course he falls in love with this beautiful woman. So it was love at first sight. And do you think it still holds up? I think it completely holds up. And this film definitely has a cult following. There was even, I never got to go, which is amazing because I'm such a super fan of this movie, but there was even a true romance festival that a couple guys would throw in Los Angeles. One of the main sequences is at the Safari Motor Inn in Burbank. 
California and they would actually make some kind of deal with the people there and they would hold it there. So you rented a room and you'd stay where Clarence and Alabama, those are the two main characters, would stay and they would premiere the movie. They'd try and get some actors. I think Bronson Pinchot was there one year. They did it for a couple years. Two of them ran it, but one of them was the lead guy. And that guy, who actually you could follow him on Instagram, it's a true romance festival. If you watch the movie, there's a purple Cadillac that plays very heavy in it. This guy found the original purple Cadillac and bought it, restored it. You could hire him to take a drive in it, take pictures with it. It gets used in music videos. So he's got a whole nother life with just owning that car. I have to admit that this is my first time for seeing it. The reason for this is a somewhat silly reason. I always got it mixed up with another movie. For some reason, I always got it mixed up with California, with a K. Okay. Whenever True Romance would come on, i say, oh, I've seen that. <laughs> it took me a long time to tell myself, no, you have not seen this. So I was glad you chose it because now I got to see it. I have very strong feelings about Tarantino, which we'll get into. So I'm very glad that I got to see it. I do think it falters somewhat in the final third, and we'll get into that and we can discuss that. But overall, I found it incredibly thrilling. I often found it just wonderful with that Tarantino dialogue that's vulgarly brilliant. The technical aspects were just incredible. It was a gorgeous movie to look at, gorgeous movie to watch, great acting, everything. Overall, I reacted incredibly favorable to this movie. What are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? And this might be hard because it is a movie that's made up of one good scene after another, but do your best. Howard, you nailed it right there. This movie, and one of the main reasons I love it, is it's, it's literally great scene to great scene to great scene. It's written like that. There's a very famous scene as far as people who love this movie, and that would be with Christopher Walken and Dennis right. Hopper. It's complete art. It's masterful. To see these two masters also working together. It's incredibly offensive, but so well written and so well done. Hugely offensive. And even though this was 93, I don't know if a scene would fly now. But what I say is you got to look at the characters. And for those of you who don't know the scene, it's basically Dennis Hopper, who plays the father of Christian Slater, is face to face with Christopher Walken, who is one part of the mafia who are chasing his son. He pretty much knows he's going to die if he gives up his son and he's going to die if he doesn't give up his son. So he throws caution in the wind, lets the chip falls as they may. And he says, basically, I'm going to offend this guy and go out as much as I can. And he completely in a racially disrespectful way is horrible to blacks and to Italians. You can watch the movie and see the scene. Now, having said that, that is definitely one of my favorite scenes, but I would have to say my favorite scene from the film would be between Christian Slater and Gary Oldman, another confrontational scene. Christian Slater goes to confront Gary Oldman, who is the pimp to the escort Alabama that he has fallen in love with. It's a very machismo scene. It's basically him confronting him saying, she's with me now, not with you. And Gary Oldman's character, who is Drexel, saying, no, I don't think so. And it's just an intense scene. It's overtly violent, but it's one of those violent scenes where you're rooting for the violence in a sick way, which Tarantino can do. The scene with Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper was based upon a story that Tarantino got from a black roommate at one point. And right. then later on, he told this story to someone who was of Italian background. And he just knew that at one point he was going to have to use that in a film. And he right. did. Right. My favorite scene is the opening scene up to where they fall in love just before Christian Slater Clarence goes to confront the pimp. 
this is very difficult to pull off. And Quinn Tarantino does it very well. These people have to fall in love in 24 hours, and they have to fall in love to such a degree that they're going to basically do something that's in many ways foolish and stupid. But they're mm-hmm. so in love with each other. It's so well written, and it's so well directed. I love it when they go outside and they go up on the billboard. Though to some degree as well written as it is, what really makes it work is the gorgeous music by Hans Zimmer, which is telling mm-hmm. what's going on in these characters' hearts. To show you how obsessed I am with this film, that score is my ringtone. To my wife, we got married to that score. And I even have a tattoo on my forearm that says Clarence in Alabama with the little angel that in the movie, they both get matching tattoos 24 hours after they meet. Well, that's certainly devotion. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, Tarantino wrote the script, but he did not direct it. So it was a mixture of Tony Scott, who is the director, and Quentin Tarantino. This was the first of his films to be released following Reservoir Dogs and was the first of his screenplays not to be directed by him. Many people feel that it is a cross-section of both Tarantino and Scott's respective approach to art. Tarantino said that apart from changing the nonlinear narrative, and Scott changed that to a more conventional linear structure, Mm -hmm. it was fairly faithful to his original screenplay. He said that Tony Scott changed really nothing at all about it, except for that structure and the ending. Correct. Um, In the original screenplay, Clarence doesn't live. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Alabama lives either, right? Don't they both die? I think they both died. I think she might even kill herself. I don't know. It it was something. Very Romeo and Juliet. When Tarantino saw it, he realized that Scott's happy ending was more appropriate to the film. And I actually agree. When I see Clarence getting shot, I said, you can't kill him. That will ruin the movie. But it is interesting of a hybrid between the two. Are you a fan of Tony Scott? It's funny because this is one of my favorite films. You know, I look at other Tony Scott films. He was such a product of that 80s Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, Bruckheimer and Simpson. Basically, every Tom Cruise hit, he did Top Gun. He did, I think, Days of Thunder. Those aren't movies that I want to go back and watch over and over again. They're not my cup of tea. But something about this cross-pollination between Tarantino, his script, and then in the other hands of a director who was very passionate about the work. Tony Scott at one point said he wanted to buy and direct everything Tarantino had. And Tarantino was like, no, 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 I flattered, but I want to direct Reservoir Dogs. And I think he was working on, or he had Natural Born Killers and probably was working on Pulp Fiction. It's really weird because I watched the commentary with Tarantino, which to me is love him or hate him as a young writer in Hollywood or any writer in Hollywood. If you're getting into it, listen to the commentary on the DVDs, if you could find those with Quentin Tarantino, because he gives his whole story of how he was really trying to sell this thing and how his career began. He said, watching Tony Scott direct his films, he's like, I would never do these close ups. I would never do smoke in these scenes. But he makes it work. Tony Scott makes this film work. And it's funny because, like I said, there's no other films of his. I've enjoyed them. I didn't go back to see again. To me, it was just this once in a lifetime marriage of these two creators. So I really love what Tony Scott did with it. And it made me definitely pay more attention to his directing style. I fully agree with you. I find Tony Scott to be a very uninteresting director. I think his brother Ridley Scott is far more interesting. And I can watch his films more than once. Correct. So it was a real surprise to see this film because it is unlike any other Tony Scott movie. Mm -hmm. Something about the script brought something out in Tony Scott. 
Tarantino does talk about how Tony Scott does things that he would never do. One of the funniest things I heard Tarantino say was in Drexel and Clarence, where they have this lamp that they're pushing back and forth. Mm Mm-hmm. Tarantino, who loves the scene and loves that bit, said, you know, this makes no sense. Who has a lamp that close to the table? It's chained to a ceiling and the ceilings are miles high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not in the script. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely wonderful. And it's odd in many ways that Tony Scott was not ever able to take this and develop a very strong visual style that's his own. Right. Well, the weird thing is, too, Tarantino was this big buzz guy. True Romance had a lot of backing behind it, a lot of hype behind it. The cast you named off in the beginning at that time and still would be phenomenal. The Oscar winners in that cast, the the Oscar nominees in that cast, the movie stars playing bit roles, small roles. So it was amazing that this movie, it became a cult film, more or less. Yeah, it did lose money at the box office. Yeah. But I do think this does point out that I think to a great degree, the success of the film does revolve around Quentin Tarantino and his screenplay. Full disclosure, I think Tarantino is our greatest contemporary American filmmaker. And I think he may be our most important contemporary American filmmaker. When we get to Godard, I'll be talking about that as well, because I see a lot of parallels in not only how they make their films, but the influence and importance of their films and how it affected other filmmakers, especially how Godard affected Tarantino. It's a huge influence on Tarantino. Are you a fan of Tarantino? I mean, I'd 110% agree with what you just said. The only person I'd throw in next to him would be Paul Thomas Anderson as far as those contemporaries. What Tarantino did for film, and then literally for film, if you know how much he promotes shooting in film still. I mean, he's the ultimate fanboy made good. I would never want to be in competition or contest with talking about obscure 70s films with him, but I love to listen to him talk because he has such a passion for film. He can't just talk about it and back it up with facts. He can produce it. His scripts are fun. His movies are fun. He takes risks which i really love he writes what he loves which is so telling there's movies of tarantino that i'm like ah whatever i could give or take but then there's ones i love with all my heart to me that's a great director peter travers of rolling stones gave the movie three stars saying it's tarantino's gutter poetry that detonates true romance i suspect that One of the reasons why it may not have done well, and here I'm going to get a bit heady and intellectual, is that it is not postmodern, it's Mm post-postmodern. I'll define what I mean by that, because Godard I also consider to be post-postmodern, even though Godard was making films during the postmodern period. The postmodern period arrived in France in the late 50s following existentialism. It arrived in the U.S. starting in the late 60s and then into the 70s. And the films at that time were for the first time made by people who were so ensconced in film. Mm -hmm. They lived film. They watched film. They watched every kind of film that was possible to be seen. And this included in America people like Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, filmmakers like that. And what made them postmodern is they made films that were highly and incredibly influenced or riffs on the earlier films. Some went with American films, some went with European films, but they didn't necessarily do it consciously. They just did it. When you get to Godard and then when you get to Tarantino, they're just not doing that. They're telling the audience that they're doing that. Mm. They're telling the audience, not only am I postmodern and that I reference anything and everything in the past. 
because postmodernism is a movement that basically says everything from the past, from a fart joke to Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy, is equally valid in creating art. They might not be ultimately equally valid as art, but they're equally valid in creating art. So you have all these movies that take anything and everything from the past, and they start creating these works of art. And when you get to postmodern, the filmmakers are winking at the audience. And telling mm-hmm. the audience, this is what I'm doing. I don't want you to not know that you're watching a film. I want you to know that I am stealing from anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. I am commenting on the film as well as making a film that can be enjoyable without being commented on. If that makes any sense. No, well said. True Romance is a movie made up of scenes. And all these scenes are very heightened. Tarantino's films are very heightened. And people don't talk like that. It's, <laughs> this is not going for reality. Which is always what I love when people read a script or something like that. And they go, oh, well, this would never happen. I go, yeah, of course it would. We're writing heightened reality. Any play you see, even the most dramatic, serious ones that are relatable to a topic, they're all heightened. Of course, it's a commentary on, you know, this person saying, this is what I want you to see and enjoy, hopefully. Or find something that you enjoy in it, whether it hurts or it, it inspires you. David Denby of New York Magazine, in talking about Pulp Fiction, and I think it also relates here. He said that Pulp Fiction is play, a commentary on old movies. Tarantino works with trash, and by analyzing, criticizing, and formalizing it, he emerges with something new. Justice Goddard made a lyrical work of art and Breathless out of his memories of casually crappy American B-movies. Of course, Goddard was and is a Swiss Parisian intellectual, and that is one of the major differences between the two when it comes to what they reference in their movies. And the tonalities of his work are drier, more cerebral. Pulp Fiction, by contrast, displays an entertainer's talent for luridness. And he does raise, I think, these pop forms and this luridness to art. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the look of the film? The look of the film, that's 100% Tony Scott. That's what's really interesting to see. And same thing with, you kind of referenced it, but Tarantino loved what Tony Scott did with True Romance. He loves the film. He said, as the writer, he's more than happy with it. Not the same for Natural Born Killers, if you know uh, Tarantino's story with that. Let's not get into Natural Born Killers. I hated Natural Born Killers. But just to give the example of this is a director with Tarantino's words that did not make him happy. Uh, You know, and writers are going to be very sensitive to the look of, especially a writer director. It's funny because a lot of director friends of mine pointed out like, oh yeah, this is a Tony Scott trope, the extreme close-ups, the smoke, like these are all Tony Scott trademarks. And then I started noticing them in his other films and I said, okay, they kind of looked more campy in his other films like Top Gun or uh, Last Boy Scout. Whereas in True Romance, it was fun and it worked. It made this comic book that Quentin Tarantino wrote that much bigger. I love the look of the film, down to the lighting in the diner, to the, the lighting in the movie theaters, to the lighting in the on the billboard. I, I think it's such a dark, beautiful fairy tale written by Quentin Tarantino and obviously directed by Tony Scott. I think you may make a very interesting point there in that, yes, the look of the film is Tony Scott, and he has these certain trademark things he does. When he puts them in a movie like Top Gun, as you say, they seem a bit camp or they're very uninteresting or they don't really do anything because it's not just that he doesn't have a very good script. He doesn't have a script that is on his wavelength when it comes Mm -hmm. to these particular stylistic flourishes. So along comes this screenplay, which is perfect for his stylistic flourishes. They can be camp because to a great degree, Tarantino has a certain camp quality Mm -hmm. to his work. And that's not a negative. That's 
No, he's born and raised on pop culture. Right. And I thought the art direction, the cinematography, the incredible colors. Mm. I was always amazed by these magnificent colors. And it reminded me also of Perot Le Fou in the use of colors, that they use very, very bright. Yeah, especially in that beginning. Colors. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. We have talked about the music. I think Hans Zimmer's score, though not exactly original. It's, nope. Yeah. It's based on a theme from Karl Off's Schul work called Gassenhauer. And as far as I can understand, it's very beautiful, but it's basically something to use to teach people how to play music. Yeah, it's extremely simple. It's I, I think they used it it's like a dark fairy tale. So I think to give right. it that fairy tale kind of element. I do have, as I said, some issues with the last third. There is some plotting that doesn't quite work as wonderful as Gandolfini is. Mm-hmm. That scene where Patricia Arquette holds up, I can't remember whether it was scissors or whatever it was. Corkscrew. Corkscrew. And Gaudolfini says, oh, you want to play? And all I could think of is, wait a minute, this doesn't work for Dr. No when he's (laughs) doing this to James Bond. I didn't quite buy that. I thought that could have been better done. The bigger issue I had is the big shootout in the hotel room, Mm -hmm. which I don't think Tony Scott could quite pull off. I think Tarantino could have pulled it off because it seems very, very influenced by John Woo. I just kept seeing John Woo all over the place. Completely, yeah, completely. But not quite as... I want to say subtle because John Wu is not subtle, but he's more subtle than this scene because it was so over the top. It took away from the emotion of Clarence's getting shot. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't quite get emotion involved with that because I'm so distracted by all these other people shooting everybody else in a way that wasn't quite as well directed as the rest of the film. In addition, neither Clarence or Alabama or Michael Rappaport's character is going to get away with any of this. All the police are going to be looking for them. They're recorded on a wiretap, and they're all over the videos in the hotel. And it's funny because I've written a few screenplays, and I've definitely could see influence upon an influence, influence of growing up watching Tarantino films. I've written scenes where in my back of my head, I go, where are the cops? That was another issue. It takes forever for cops to get there, where in real life, I'm going, they'd be there long before this. Well, yeah, but jump ahead to Pulp Fiction when Travolta's character drives his Cadillac up right in front of the house of the drug dealer played by Eric Stoltz. And he's got the OD Mia Wallace. No neighbors call the cop. Tarantino is one of those guys. Sure, there's many others. That's why it's movies. But where, yeah, you've got to completely suspend your disbelief on local law enforcement involvement. Because, yeah. Well, I do take your point. Though I thought the ending with them in Mexico, having a four-year-old child, was actually very moving. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Named Elvis. Right. <laughs> and he could be named Elvis. They couldn't name the Val Kilmer character Elvis. Yeah. He couldn't get permission from the uh, state. So he's just the mentor. That's right. Again, we might want to bring up this incredibly brilliant cast. It's and insane, who were some yeah. of your, your favorite actors or cast members in this? I mean, obviously, Gary Oldman was my first introduction to Gary Oldman. And I didn't know what that guy's real face looked like forever. I, my dad said, that's Dracula. I said, well, what is, like, you know, this guy, he was the current Lon Chaney time. No, when I see Drexel, I kept saying, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? And then I finally went, oh, that's Gary Oldman. See, to be able to do that even now is pretty amazing. I'll give the people props who I think did a lot with a little. Brad Pitt, who I was not even a huge fan of, he took this role and 
He plays the stoner roommate. And Tarantino says, this was the most underwritten character. I just kind of threw him in there. He's the roommate. And Brad Pitt, even Tony Scott, everybody praised Brad Pitt for completely creating this character with these amazing lines. He's in two scenes and he steals them all. I will say the same for as far as the lack of vanity. Val Kilmer, we just talked about. He's written as the mentor, but it's Elvis. So Clarence, the main character, is obsessed with Elvis. You don't know if he's hallucinating him or if it's just who he kind of sees as his mentor, his mind. Val Kilmer gets the job from Tony Scott, and he's like, yeah, I want to play Elvis. He watched every Elvis movie. He went through all the costumes. They shoot the stuff, and Tony Scott says, hey, Val, your face is not going to be seen at all. You're going to be in the background. It's going to be your voice. And Val Kilmer was, according to this, who knows, was completely cool with it. He just knocks it out of the park. And then James Gandolfini, this is way before The Sopranos. So, you know, you want to see early Gandolfini. If you didn't know who that guy was, you're like, who the hell is this actor? And then you've got stalwarts like Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. And in Christian Slater, I wasn't a huge fan of her. Patricia Arquette, that was my first introduction to her. And I was head over heels after that. I was just like, this lady's amazing. And as we've seen her career blossom, she's a very talented actress. It was just a lot of people in love with the work, which I think really showed. Trying to pick the favorite actor or characters is like trying to pick the favorite scene. About Dennis Hopper, Christopher Walken. Yes, Brad Pitt is very, very funny. I'm not a big fan of Patricia Arquette. I like their father much better, who perhaps is most famous now for being on Hollywood Squares. <laughs> but I thought this is probably the best performance that she ever gave. The same for Christian Slater. Yeah, agree. I've enjoyed him in things, but he's not necessarily one of my favorite actors. I was really surprised at his performance, even though it is a little campy and funny how he goes from this rather naive, innocent person into this brilliant marksman. <laughs> into Travis Bickley. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Right. But it is an incredible cast amazing what you can do if you have a really good casting director mm-hmm. along with people who really can tell a good actor from a bad actor or mm-hmm. at least know what they want i mean i always say whoever the casting for cone brothers films like if there's an oscar for casting give them that because they always cast the smaller roles so brilliantly even in true romance yeah the, the guy who he's talking to at the burger joint he notices he's reading a, a magazine about elvis and he starts talking to him like that guy was great or the casting director who the, that actress recently passed away uh, yes two and a half so, yeah two and a half men if you've ever gone for an audition in hollywood you've met that casting director a hundred thousand times you're a great actor you're great she reads with no passion whatsoever you're in you're out and you're like what just happened so with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $12.5 million to make and made $12.3 million. So <laughs> it did not do well at the box office, but it is now a cult classic. Tarantino sold the script in order to make Reservoir Dogs. He also got money to make that movie by playing an Elvis impersonator <laughs> in the fourth season of The Golden Girls in the episode Sophia's Wedding Part 1. Which you can see on YouTube. You can see that, yeah. He got money from that, and then he kept getting a lot of residuals for that. The Gossenhauer, uh, which is the short piece that Hans Zimmer based the music on, has been used many times in many places, including the films Badlands, Ratcatcher, Finding Forrester, Monster, Michael Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story, and the Simpsons 22nd season episode, The Scorpion's Tale. <laughs> Brad Pitt's stoner character, Floyd, was the inspiration for making the film Pineapple Express, according to Judd Apatow. He thought it would be funny to make a movie in which you follow that character out of his apartment and watch him get chased by bad guys. <laughs> 
and I never knew that. That's great. The screenplay of the movie was originally part of a 500-page screenplay written by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery called The Open Road. And this is how I understand it. The other half of it was used for Natural Born Killers. Mm -hmm. True Romance is the screenplay the screenwriter is writing in Natural Born Killers as he is being chased by the escaped convicts. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Pierrot Le Fou, or Pierrot the Madman. First, some information about the film. Pierrot Le Fou is a French New Wave film released in 1965. It was written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard, based on the 1962 novel Obsession by Lionel White, an American journalist and crime novelist. It stars Jean-Paul Belmondo, Anna Karina, Raziella Galvani, Dirk Sanders, Jimmy Karobi, Roger Dutrois, Hans Myers, Samuel Fuller, Raymond DeVos, Leslo Sabo, and Jean-Pierre Leo. The story revolves around a bored husband, a member of the French bourgeoisie, who runs into an old flame when she is asked to babysit his children. They run off together, and when he finds a corpse in her apartment, he discovers she is being chased by the OAS, a right-wing fascist political group. That group is searching for money that belongs to them, but the couple take the money and go on the run. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I mean, right away, I I saw the couples on the run. So you got that for sure. And then being chased by a criminal element. So I got that. To me, though, what vibed the most between the two was the absence of morality and the violence. (laughs) Of the, I should say, the casual partaking in violence. And I will say your pick even more so. That opening scene, I'm like, do they know there's a body there? And then they find it. The, just the lack of, ah, well, we're, you know, we got to do this now. There's a dead body here and knock that guy out and then take his car and go. It was just, it was, yeah, it was amazing. And when did you first see the film? I know that this was the first time you saw it, right? Yeah, this is my first time seeing it. Like I said, I was raised by a film buff. I became a film buff. Lived in LA for, I don't know, 15 years. And, you know, all my roommates were becoming filmmakers, were going to film schools. I was well aware of the French New Wave, but the, the closest we came to it was making fun of it without seeing it. And I won't say we were far off. <laughs> no, you weren't. The film you shared with me is pretty much a rather brilliant satire <laughs> of the French New Wave and actually of Godard in particular. Right. And that's just me going off of my generalization of the, you know, the clips I've seen. There was parts to me where I went, oh, this is very French. Like the listening to a character literally just read to you about some kind of philosophical prose was to me extremely French. This movie was made in what, 1969? 65. 65. Okay, wow. In a film, I try and put myself in the parlance of the times for a film that I'm seeing way later. So if I saw this film back then, or even in the 70s or 80s, I would be blown away, completely blown away by just being that they could get away with these things or the casualness, like I said, of violence or of irreverent relationships. So I, I was looking at it through two lenses of me now and me of the time. Well, you did speak of this some, but what did you think of the movie? I liked it. I thought it definitely, like I said, was extremely, in quotes, French. French New Wave of the time. I saw it as a comedy, as like a dark, dark comedy. And I don't know if that's just my humor or if it's just my interpretation of, or if that's what Godard was going for. I was cracking up at times. Like, they're in the gas station. <laughs> they're just like, Hi, okay, we can't pay for the gas. So obviously we got to either incapacitate or kill the guy who's pumping the gas. It was nuts. I would say overall, I liked it. I did. Well, I think it's very 
interesting then you talk about it as a comedy and i'm going to make a bit of a speech about that because i think that's in many ways spot on i don't remember exactly when i first saw it it might have been in college it might have been later when i was catching up on goddard films i first saw breathless that was my first goddard film and that was pretty much his first feature i saw it back in the 70s so i saw it near the time when it was made and i had the reaction that you thought you would have if you saw this back then i was blown away i said i have never seen a film like this right no one makes a film like this no one does editing like this no one uses music like this and i loved it full disclosure i think godard is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time in 2002 sight and sound poll godard is ranked third in the critics top 10 directors of all time i'm not sure i quite getting that high i might but he's definitely up there at the same time i have a difficult time recommending him to friends Mm -hmm. there are a group of three filmmakers who i think are brilliant and great but i can't imagine any of my friends liking them and the other two is robert person and roberto rossellini Mm -hmm. Uh, and for those two the reason is they use non-actors they don't try to dramatize films in the same way in many ways i describe them like Godard is almost being anti-cinema, but I think they're great. No one has really been able to do what Godard has done. There is one filmmaker, Leo Carax, who people think is brilliant. I want to shoot myself every time I see (laughs) one of his films because I'm going, you want to be Godard, but you don't seem to have an idea as to what makes Godard work. Right. When I saw them in the 70s, and people would see his films, no matter what they were, including this one, no one laughed at them. And I didn't laugh at them either. And his first set of films, Up to Contempt, starting with Breathless and Band of Outsiders, there's not really that much comedy to him. He uses the same style, but they're not exactly comedies. There was a movie called Weekend Mm -hmm. that he made, which I saw. And it's about a bourgeois couple who, like so many bourgeois couples, they go to the country for the weekend and you see these incredibly long lines of stalled cars. There's an incredible wreck and people are driving crazy. And I didn't get it. Right. In 2001, I moved to L.A. One of the things that are really tell you when they move to L.A., the one thing they notice is people are insane when they drive in this city. Yeah, it comes to the territory. They are crazy. So I watch Weekend again, and I get it. I say, oh, this is a comedy. Mm -hmm. And I understand perfectly where the humor is coming from because I live it in Los Angeles. And after this, his films become funnier and funnier. They become even satirical. So, yes, Parola Fu is often extremely funny to some degree different from his earlier films but you're right it's a comedy well that opening scene with the dinner party that he goes to where the conversations he walks in on with the different lighting which i love that i love the each room had a different lighting but the conversations were hilarious and the one woman's just casually topless (laughs) and talking about new i mean like yeah how can you not laugh at that or when he talks to the american filmmaker he's being translated by somebody it's brilliant Right. I think you've mentioned a couple, but do you have any other favorite scenes? I love the opening, for sure. Just the the tonal quality of that and kind of just showing this guy's life. The ending to me, too, was just another insane him Oh, with the dynamite that doesn't look remotely... Doesn't look remotely like dynamite. And he double straps dynamite. He puts yeah. one layer on over his head, which which I mean, to be fair, if you want to kill yourself, yeah, you're going to blow your head off. So I guess that works. One layer and then another layer. And then the, oh, what am I doing? Boom. <laughs> it's, just, it's so I, it's I so don't want to kill myself too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then the gas station scene I thought was just hilarious too because it was just so... <laughs> 
<laughs> you just, just ridiculous and you just get the idea of okay this is the kind of movie i'm in for the opening scene with when they're in the apartment with the corpse they knock out the friend meanwhile there's just a whole armament of guns around and right. everybody's walking around like it's nothing just walking through the room but then once they're in the gas station i'm like okay so they're not going to play by anybody's rules and they're gonna do whatever the hell they have to do to get away or get what they want I also loved the party scene with the different colors going from room to room. I like the scene where he throws the cake at the woman and it turns into fireworks. Yes, yeah. I like the musical scenes where suddenly they'll just start singing, especially Anna Karina. But my favorite scene has to be where he goes to the bar and he enters the bar and there's a car in the bar. Mm-hmm. Just there. There's just this car there. The woman goes over to the jukebox, puts on some music and starts doing the twist. A man comes up to Jean-Paul Belmondo, to Ferdinand or Barrow, and says, don't you recognize me? We met a year ago. I loaned you 100,000 francs that you haven't mm. paid back and you slept with my wife. <laughs> and then after a pause, the man says, well, see you around. And he leaves. <laughs> That sums up the whole movie. Mm-hmm. The weakest part of the movie is the middle part. They're down in the Riviera and they're staying in the countryside. That, I think, could have been sped up a bit. And she literally says, I'm bored. Yes. <laughs> I'm bored. I'm like, what are we going to do? Let's do something yeah. else. The screenplay, the way Godard usually works, is he would have the screenplay. But then he would shoot for like three hours. And then in the afternoon, he would write the screenplay for the next day's shooting and come up with ideas for it. And then would often have the actors improvise. So to a great degree, he had the outline of the story going, but he pretty much made it out as he went along. Oh, that's interesting. So we've talked about this, but I think what makes Godard Godard often is his direction. Godard said of Perot Le Fou that it is not really a film. It's an attempt at cinema. Life is a subject with cinemascope and color as its attributes. In short, life filling the screen as the tap fills a bathtub that is simultaneously emptying at the same rate. Okay, I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> but it sounds like a Godard film. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think of his direction, the way he makes film? This is the only film of his I've seen, and like I said, it was it was almost what I expected from my general idea of a French New Wave film. But it's funny because I'm a fan of all the people who were influenced by him. Like, for instance, I'm a huge Cassavetes fan. Mm-hmm. That kind of free form of almost like you're just pointing the camera at almost like there's not even a camera there like you're just watching life which is what i love about cassavetti films I just feel like i'm just sitting on the couch in this person's house i felt a little more distant because they're traveling but i, I felt like i was uh, a fly in the wall catching life happen and to me if you can make me feel like i'm not watching a film where i'm going to be critiquing you know or if it's like some kind of giant action film where i'm just like oh okay or i feel very outside of it even in the craziness of their world i felt very inside of it he was trying new things things in each scene or each location sometimes it was an artistic look that made you go okay yeah he's changing the colors in the scene or then it's other times where you're just sitting with him in his bathtub he's reading to his kid from a book it still all felt very free i never felt like i was in a shot it's interesting that you say that because he in many ways does everything he can to try to make you realize you're watching a movie he'll have music that will start and stop in the middle of a scene right he'll address the audience at one point gene baba mondo and anna corinna are in a car gene paul mondo turns to the camera and says something anna corinna says who are you talking to and he says the audience <laughs> that's right that's right they'll start breaking out into song there's nothing realistic about the scenes as you say right he's highly influenced by the playwright bertolt brecht who wrote plays from around the 20s to the 40s Bertolt Brecht never wanted the audience to forget that they were watching a play. He was trying to say something. He was very political, like Jean-Luc Godard is. He would do things like have people burst out in the song. 
the play was not done realistically. One of the ironies is that it was supposed to distance you and never let you forget that you're watching a play. Right. It doesn't work. In right. fact, you become even more involved and forget that you're watching a play. It's very funny. Yeah. That that's, that's how it happens. I guess the intim- intimacy is what I was getting at. It feels intimate. You feel like you're there with them, even with the breaking of the fourth wall and all stuff. It just feels intimate. But the same for Jean-Luc Godard. He does right. everything he can to make you realize you're watching a film and you constantly forget that you're watching a film. Yeah. The alienation makes for a great visual style and makes for a great, very entertaining evening in the theater. It just doesn't achieve the goal. Mm-hmm. that the person wants because it doesn't alienate the audience. True. One of the things I thought in comparison to Tarantino and, and to Scott, as I said, was the use of color. And this was more Tony Scott than, of course, Tarantino is. And I thought the same thing here. The art direction, the set direction, the cinematography with these incredibly bright colors, vivid reds and blues and mm-hmm. greens. They go to a boat, which would normally be more or less run down and needing paint. No, this is a freshly mm-hmm. painted, brightly painted boat. And it's very, very beautiful. The cinematographer, Raul Cotard, worked with many of the major new filmmakers. He worked with Truffaut and he worked with Shock to Me. And he's one of the major artists that came out of the new wave. The music is also very important, like I think Hans Zimmer's is. It's by Antoine Duchamel, who also did a lot of the new wave. And it's very Bernard Herrmann Mm. and brings about a certain mood, I think, to the film. What did you think of the technical aspects of the film, the way it looked, the set design, the art direction? Oh, I thought it was great. I thought some of it was like a play when they're in the apartment. I felt that was very set up with all the gun and the the corpse and everything. Even the corpse itself was dynamic. It looked like there was scissors in the throat or something like that. Something. And, it, and he uses paint. He doesn't try to make it look like blood. No, no, it's, it's very exaggerated. Red paint. Yeah. Well, even the dynamite he uses, yeah. which we said does not look anything like dynamite, was bright blues Red. and yellows or whatever. It was to make a statement, and it's covering his face. So. They run into people along the way, and sometimes they're there because they ran into these people while they were making the film. Goddard said, oh, that's interesting, and he puts them in the film. The other area, I think, that parallels Quentin Tarantino is, is they're both besides being post-postmodern in that they both call attention to the fact that this is a film and is both of them are constantly referencing pop culture, Mm -hmm. though Godard goes beyond that. He also references a ton of intellectual references as well. Mm -hmm. Famous painters, famous authors, philosophical authors, which sometimes I wonder if he's making a statement that they're as much pop art as these other references. He references past movies. He references a lot of contemporary pop art. The one that always sticks out to me is Put a Tiger in Your Tank, Mm -hmm. which was a very famous commercial in the 60s and 70s. You'll see Esso, which is the European version of Exxon, in all these French films. (laughs) The product placement is quite incredible. That does remind me because there was a quote by Tarantino. Tarantino is often accused of stealing. Right. And my response is, well, yes, of course he is. That's what he does. I don't understand your criticism. That's postmodernism. That's postmodernism. I think it's a ridiculous criticism of it. Though once I, someone asked, when is it stealing? And I said, no, if it doesn't work, it's stealing. If it works, it's a homage. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good one. That's a good one. But Tarantino, I believe, said in response to this, doesn't matter where you're taking something from. It's where you're taking it to. I like that. And I know that's not the exact quote. Well, I mean, the premise is all there, and I agree with it. Here, I'll give you an example. I love 
Gus Van Sant. Mm-hmm. But Hitchcock's Psycho is a perfect film. It's brilliant. One, it didn't need to be redone, and it definitely didn't need to be redone verbatim. That, to me, was just a director masturbating. It's a director trying to show off. I love Hitchcock. I want to make Psycho. I'm going to make Psycho because I can, and I'm getting the money to do it. Whereas Tarantino, the amount of films that guy has sponged in his brain, it's unfathomable to try and uh, comprehend that. So when he puts it out, if he's telling it within a story, and usually his characters are referencing things. You know, they're saying a line from a movie or referencing a TV show or a comic book or something like that. To me, it's it's all about the character, and it's all about the character trying to communicate their love of that thing. He's taking it somewhere, like you said. You know, it's where you're taking it to. It's in furtherance of telling a story or developing a character. But this is what postmodernism is. Godard does the same thing. And if you don't like that, you just don't like postmodernism. But that's what postmodernism is. It's taking mm. everything from the past and using it and exploiting it to make something new. Mm-hmm. That's the major approach to art since the 1960s in the U.S. and the late 50s in France and Europe. So if people don't like that, they just don't like the postmodernism. They don't like the major art philosophy that was driving film up until around the last few years, where I think we're now getting beyond post-postmodernism and taking it a step further, where we're hitting genre meets diversity, mm-hmm. where you take a familiar genre, but you use diverse characters and plot elements in bringing this to a close, I suppose we talk about lovers on the run films in general, because mm-hmm. this is a whole subgenre unto itself. Are you a fan or do you see a lot of lover on the run? Yeah, uh, this is obviously my favorite one. You reference and you want another derivative or stolen or whatever, but Badwin by Terrence right. Malick, which was based on a true story of lovers on the run of Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugit. Brutal story and real. They use the same music. There's narration, you know, <laughs> the same narration by the female character. And I saw Badwands after I'd seen True Romance. So I went, oh, wow, okay. And yet still love True Romance way more. Lovers on the Run subgenre, I can't guarantee this, but I think one could safely say that in many ways it began with Bonnie and Clyde. And I don't mean the movie Bonnie and Clyde. Literally, yeah, I get it. The, the real life Bonnie and Clyde and more the myth of Bonnie and Clyde because yeah. Bonnie and Clyde were not quite exactly the romantic figures that we think of them. No, no, not, and, at, all. <laughs> not at all. And there were a lot of films especially film noir and B-films mm-hmm. that were influenced by this, and it became the lovers on the run. People constantly make them, and they still make them. What do you think is the appeal? One, whether you like it or not, I think everybody is attracted to love and to the loyalty. And usually these couples are bonded very intensely and very quickly, so that there's this fantasy aspect of, ah, oh, wouldn't that be nice to just get through all the ring of a roll and to be that intensely in love with each other. And then giving the middle finger to society and saying, do or die, we're going to live by our our rules and live our life, which is exciting and appealing and sexy. I think it's that mixture of real romance and danger. I think to some degree that maybe one of the reasons why it did appeal a lot to French filmmakers, mm-hmm. because that's a very existential approach to life. Mm-hmm. You, you tell society, you don't control us. We're going to define who we are. We're going to make our own decisions and we're not going to apologize for it. And it allows the story to go into places that most stories wouldn't go. It's just not just a couple meeting at a coffee shop and then dating. You right. know, it allows to take these facades down and go these unstructured routes of a relationship. It allows the story to be so much more heightened and alive. With that, here's some more information about the film. It cost approximately 300000 I have dollars. I don't know if that should be francs or not to make. It was the 15th highest grossing film of the year in France. It had a total of 1,310,580,000 admissions. So it probably did make its money back. 
The film was selected as the French entry for the Best Foreign Language Film at the 38th Academy Awards, but was not accepted as a nominee. That year, the shop on Main Street from Czechoslovakia was the winner. Anna Karina was Goddard's wife and muse, and she made eight movies with him. Jean-Pierre Liot, who made several films with Truffaut and Godard, and is considered one of the icons of the French New Wave and French cinema in general, has a bit part in the movie theater. You see most of his face, but not all his face. He's a sailor sitting in front of Belmondo, and he was an unofficial assistant and director on the film. Sam Fuller, the American filmmaker who is in the party scene, mm -hmm. is revered as an auteur by the French. I have no idea why. <laughs> He has made some good films like Pick Up on South Street, but most of his films are hysterically awful. I'm just laughing at the ridiculousness of his plots. The OAS, or the Organisation Armée Secrète, uh, which translates as the Secret Armed Organization, which is the organization hunting down Belmondo and Corinna, was a French dissident paramilitary organization during the Algerian War. The OAS carried out terrorist attacks, including bombings and assassinations, in an attempt to prevent Algeria's independence from French colonial rule. Perel Fou is a name given to a clown, and Jean-Luc Godard is now 90 and perhaps the last filmmaker from the New Wave period still alive now that Agnes Varda has passed away. He says he has two films left to make before he retires. <laughs> wow. Good for him. Well, with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. The first one that came to mind, because this was my introduction to Gary Oldman, by force of nature as an actor, it's a movie called State of Grace. It came out in about 91. It's another cult classic gangster film. It's loosely based on the real story of the Westies, who were the Irish mafia in, in Hell's Kitchen in New York in the 80s. It's another superb cast. Gary Oldman, Sean Penn, Ed Harris, John DeToro, John C. Riley, Robin Wright. It's a phenomenal film. It's scored by Ennio Morricone, directed by Phil Janau, who very interesting director. He directed Three O'Clock High before this, which was an obscure 80s film. This film is beautiful to me. If you're a Gary Oldman fan, it's him at his prime. He is just phenomenal. Another one that just came to mind as far as like a tonal quality, I mentioned Cassavetti's Killing of a Chinese Bookie with Ben Gazzara. This guy's a gambler and he runs a, a strip club in Hollywood. One bad night of gambling puts him in debt to these gangsters. Just had another feel of instant bad day for a person and then their life is completely turned around. I chose three Lovers on the Run films that are based on the myth of Bonnie and Clyde. The first one is They Live by Night, Nicholas Ray's 1948 film noir about an escaped convict wounded during a robbery. He falls in love with the woman who nurses him back to health. It's a beautifully written film starring Farley Granger and Kathy O'Donnell. It was remade by Robert Altman as Thieves Like Us, but that version just did not work for me at all. And the next one is Gun Crazy. It's a B film, film noir from 1950 with John Dahl and Peggy Cummins. Uh, it's about an expert marksman who meets a seductive woman running a shooting gallery at a carnival and they end up robbing banks together. Don't you hate when that happens? It happens a lot more than you, yes. more than you realize. And of course... <laughs> And of course, 1967's Bonnie and Clyde starring Warren Beatty and mm. Fate Dunaway, a more direct dramatization of the myth of these criminal lovers. So what is next? What should we be looking for from you? I do a uh, podcast, although I'm kind of in and out these days. It's called The Real Short Box. We do YouTube lives on Monday nights usually, which are fun. And then we have an audio podcast. We talk about everything pop culture, mainly comic book world. Anywhere you could find your podcast, we're there. 
Great. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and script consultant. So I have a Howard Kastner Facebook screenplay consultation page. I have a blog called Rentings and Ravings, where I talk about issues with screenwriting and movies. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, horror, and fantasy short stories. I have published the second edition of a screenwriting book, More Rentings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, and that is also on Amazon. And I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with 80s movie montage podcasters Anna Kaiser and Derek Denke, returning guest, where we discussed two movies about the most traumatic years of anyone's lives, high school, with Fast Times at Richmond High and The Last Picture Show. The next episode will be with producer-director-writer Martina Silcock, where we will discuss Do the Right Thing and the 2019 French film Les Miserables, not based on the novel. They're both about racial unrest in specific neighborhoods. And with that, Jarrett, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.